Welcome to The Future of Legal Gender, a short series podcast for the Feminist and Critical Law Reform Project, funded by the ESRC. In this podcast series, we explore what might happen if a state no longer certified sex or gender at birth. This podcast was recorded in January 2021 at a virtual event jointly hosted with the Centre for Sexuality, Race and Gender Justice at the University of Kent. In this episode, project members provide an overview of papers published by Feminists at Law, an open access online journal. You can find a link to read the accompanying papers in our episode notes. The episode begins with a brief introduction by Professor Donatella Alessandrini of Kent Law School. And I, on behalf of the Editorial Board of Feminists at Law and the Centre for Sexuality, Race and Gender Justice, are delighted to launch the special issue of the journal on the future of legal gender, exploring the feminist politics of decertification, jointly hosted with the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's College. The special issue is based on research carried out as part of the broader uh, Future of Legal Gender project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. So we're grateful to the research team and the speakers for giving us the opportunity today to reflect together on some of the questions that the special issue and the project more broadly has raised, including what would the implications be for Britain in Britain for feminism of no longer having a legal sex registered at birth? Could single sex provision continue with loose and porous categories? Do wider publics want the law reformed? Is gender neutral legislation beneficial? And are there feminist risks in treating gender as a private aspect of selfhood? These are some of the questions we would like to explore together with you and we'd welcome different questions too, especially questions that have not been asked and perspectives that have not been aired so far. So I'd like to warmly welcome the research team and thank them for giving us the opportunity to have this conversation. Davina Cooper, who's research professor in law at King's College London. Emily Grabham is professor of law at Kent. Flora Rentz, lecturer in law at Kent. Robin Emerton, who's research associate at King's College London. Liz Peel, who's professor of communication and social interaction at Loughborough University. And Han Newman, research associate, School of Sport, Exercise and Health Science at Loughborough University too. So thank you all again for helping us think through these questions and um, helping us start the conversation. Now, as to the format of the launch, in the first part, Davina will introduce the project and the paper on the certification, together with the challenges and the concerns it poses. And Flora will introduce the paper on single sex provision, focusing on schools. We will then take five minutes for clarification questions on the papers. So if you have, if you have any, please type them in the chat box and my colleagues, Haley and Rachel will read them out um, and then we move to Liz's paper uh, on cisgenderism and endosexism, focusing on the analysis of the project survey, followed by Emily, um, Emily's paper on the history and politics of non-gendered legislative drafting. 
And Davina will then conclude with very brief reflections on prototyping new imaginary laws. Then we'll move to the open Q&A session. So if you have questions as you listen to the different papers, please write them in the chat box and Hey and Rachel will invite you to post them directly to the speakers. Very last point, we are recording the talks because we'd like to post them, but we will pause the recording and won't post uh, people's contributions. We'd also be glad if people could leave their cameras on, uh, but understand if you'd rather uh, not do that. And please, uh, to avoid echoes, um, uh, keep uh, your mics on mute when you're not talking. So without taking any more time, uh, Davina, the floor is yours. Thank you. And thanks everyone very much for coming. I want to thank Serge um, for hosting this event, which is really kind of you, and to Donatella and Haley and Rachel for helping to organise it. So I want to open um, with three brief stories which were told to us by interviewees working in the equality sector. And these stories reflect different perspectives on gender and on the challenges that a changing gender landscape create. So the first is the story about identity affirmation and visibility. And one local government worker told us of their Ask Me My Pronouns campaign. And this involved giving out badges to raise awareness in their words about pronouns and how they could be different. And they said, we've got loads of my pronouns are badges. They was one of them and she and he, obviously. I think it's interesting, even if it just starts the conversation. It's interesting also that the they badges have gone. We've got loads of he badges left over. The second is a story about women's vulnerability, which is taken from an interview with a voluntary sector worker. And they said, my local swimming centre is moving from having separate cubicles to having a changing village. They were having a display about it and I was talking to the, one of the guys and I said, I'm a bit worried because the teenage boys pull themselves up over the edge and it's really intimidating. And they said, the walls are floor to ceiling and made of drill proof material. And I said, what do you mean by drill proof? And they said, oh, there's an issue with people coming in with drills and drilling through in order to peer through or to put in cameras. And I said, so you're sitting here telling women that they have absolutely nothing to worry about. And at the same time, you're building your cubicles out of drill proof material because you know that this is an issue. And the third is a story about um, policies to tackle inequality told to us by a trade union official who described a new zipping initiative that they were using at their union conference to ensure men and women were called upon equally to speak by alternately um, drawing women and men's name cards from two piles. And the question then arose, what about non-binary delegates? Should they be included with the women's cards or with the men's? And our interviewee described Originally, the idea was that non-binary people would be put in with the women. Then someone said, hang on a minute, the whole point of this rule is to increase the representation of women. If you said I'm not binary, you're saying I'm not female. And so then you're in the other pile. I'll come back to these issues, but what I want to do first is to introduce our research project and what inspired it. The current system assumes that everyone has a gender based on the sex registered at birth with limited opportunities for amending it and moving between two statuses as female and male. Some countries have made the procedure simpler and a few allow another gender to be chosen. But as gender becomes increasingly understood as a voluntary and flexible identification based on how people see and express themselves, are there good reasons for it to remain a formal legally regulated status? 
And this question was the springboard for our research project, which started in May 2018. Our aim wasn't to advocate for change, and I should sort of stress that, but to explore from a feminist perspective concerned with diverse social justice issues, whether having a legal sex or gender contributed to social justice politics. Historically, um, differentiating women and men legally subjected women to all kinds of legal disadvantages, exclusions and restrictions in relation to their bodies, work, property and political participation. So the fact law is seen by some now as a vehicle for women's empowerment and equality is an interesting development. It's important to state, however, that our project isn't about state law no longer concerning itself with gender equality. What it's exploring is whether people need to be legally classified as women and men or in other gender terms for state law to work in a progressive way. But what progressive means here is also not straightforward. In the case of gender, does it mean equalizing resources, power, opportunities and outcomes between two or more distinct groups? Or does it mean undoing gender itself as a social structure which orders and differentiates? As I'm sure um, everyone here is very well aware, our research takes place in the midst of a bitter conflict between those advocating for the interests, protection and rights of women based on reproductive sex and those who see gender as an important aspect of selfhood and self-expression that's entitled to recognition and respect in all of its diversity. Our project though sits outside both of these approaches and we can discuss this in more detail later on. Its concern is with gender as a complex set of social processes whose divisions and limits structure society and social life from the sexual harassment and objectification of women to responsibilities for care work to the stigma and violence faced by those who refuse or lack a conventional gender appearance. So the ways in which cultural values such as reason, mind, tough, hard, competition and public are split from and ranked above feelings, bodies, softness, collaboration and intimacy. And our aim is to think long term, not necessarily what laws are viable now or what legal reform would make sense in the, in the current moment, but what changes in the long term ought to take place. At the same time, our focus is a very specific one, the legal status accorded to an individual sex and gender from birth registration onwards. What would be the implications of removing it, of what we're calling decertification, where state law no longer registers, confirms, guarantees or standardizes sex and gender? So to explore this, we've started to develop a database of those British laws which rely on people having a legal sex and gender, um, which includes equality law, but it extends way beyond that, to identify all the laws that would need revising if formal gender status was abolished. We've also interviewed over 120 people, including members of different publics, um, local council officials, trade union staff, lawyers, educators, and other service providers. And we've surveyed over 3,000 people. One finding to emerge from our research is the extent to which informal policy changes are already underway. Local councils, unions and other employers, as the stories, stories I opened with illustrate, are grappling with changes in society and seeking to respond to the upsurge in gender self-identification in ways also that aren't restricted to male and female categories. 
We deliberately focused on innovators. So the scale of the change or how many or what proportion of councils are, in, are doing it, for instance, um, how many councils are using the language of non-binary is, is beyond the parameters of our research. But what is striking are the measures that public bodies are putting in place so that people, for instance, with non-conventional gender identities feel recognised and included. For instance, one council official remarked, and I discuss um, them in the context of my, in my article, Taking Public Responsibility for Gender. If we didn't say non-binary, there would be a whole load of people in the city that don't exist, literally don't exist. We're trying to be explicit because we want non-binary people to come and join the council, perhaps in recruitment, or we want to make sure that they're recognized. Developments like this constitute um, legally informal policy moves towards a more flexible approach to gender. So the question is, should they be legally formalized? And should this be done by law recognizing multiple gender categories or by removing legal gender status altogether? And those we interviewed had different opinions. In light of their views and other feminist research, however, we decided to focus our analysis on removing legal gender status rather than on multiplying gender categories for three key reasons. To avoid rarefying gender, to avoid giving state law formal authority over determining which gender categories exist and count. And because decertification more closely parallels the feminist project of undoing gender as a social structure, Yet, while removing legal gender status may seem to correspond with gender's undoing, this doesn't mean it's an effective way of accomplishing it, as one interviewee told us. It's like taking a number plate off a car and saying you've changed the car. You haven't changed the car and the car is still a car. That's not going to deal with pollution, is it? I think it's the wrong way around. At the heart of this concern is a refusal to see gender as simply about self-perception and expression. Because certainly if this is what gender means, then the state's role in assigning and policing it seems an egregious act of overreach. But if gender identifies something else, something that's far more structural and unequal, then the state's role in undoing gender differences as differences of power becomes important or remains important. And this suggests that state law and policy need to continue naming gender as a structure of inequality. But the question is, and I kind of keep returning to it, do people need to have a formal sex agenda as part of that? Our interviewees, interviews with different people identified several concerns about the effects of moving away from a formal registered and recognised sex. Interviewees suggested that decertification could undermine women-only spaces and services, that it could undermine positive action measures, and that it could undermine the collection of survey data to evidence gender inequality. These are important concerns that don't simply affect decertification as an imagined future initiative, but they're also relevant today in relation to moves towards gender self-identification. And they're concerns that are currently being addressed by public bodies. Those we interviewed emphasize the importance of approaching gender based on how it's lived rather than on the label that people have been given. And several interviewees suggested both that this was the right approach and also what happens in practice, since birth certificates and genitals are almost never disclosed. People talked about design and the importance of designing for privacy, 
to deal with some of the embarrassments of bodily proximity, for instance, in toilets or changing rooms. They talked about risk assessment as a better way of dealing with potentially dangerous bodies rather than preemptive exclusion based on status. And some talked about giving organizations um, autonomy to set criteria in terms for deciding on sex and gender, although views here were very divided. But these mechanisms are not unproblematic. And the article by um, Robin Emerton and myself in the special issue explores some of their limits in more detail. It also explores how decertification can be sutured to a more open-ended politics that questions the premises and purposes underlying anxieties about informalization to support, support a broader social justice agenda. Sporting competition, um, women only parliamentary shortlists and survey data are three areas we consider in more detail to show how moves towards informalizing gender membership can stimulate broader questions about fairness and equality. And so by informalize and um, more informalization, what I mean is um, you're remo removing the regulatory oversight um, by state or other bodies, that you're not focusing on whether there's been a compliance with particular formalities, such as a particular procedure or something in writing. Um, it might be more person-centered and more flexible, change, changeable, casual, and relaxed. And I'm not suggesting here that um, informalization is, is a solution to any sort of policy issue in any general abstract sense. The question is, what does informalizing who belongs in particular gender categories do? And so one of the things is whether it can stimulate broader questions about fairness and, and equality. For instance, in relation to sports, there's a lot of concern about who counts as a woman um, for sporting purposes. And so we might think about where, where sex fits within a wide range of factors that give people a sporting advantage. Might include training time, facilities, trainers, equipment, body shape and strength. So which of these can be tackled and what might be the best means of doing so? Asking these questions puts the purpose of sporting competition back into the spotlight, since how to address sporting fairness depends on what competition is meant to accomplish. Decertification or the withdrawing of legal gender status from individuals then can be approached as a narrow legal measure that simply formalizes the current direction of change. But it can also provide a research focus or a policy focus or a political focus that funnels out to consider more radical changes outside to the current bounds of pragmatic viability. I will return to that very briefly after the other presentations to briefly say something about the experimental law process we're pursuing. But I just want to close with a different point. At the heart of our research is the question of whether state law needs to determine who's a woman, man, or other gender status in order for public, commercial, and voluntary sector bodies to tackle gender inequality. And do the categories need to be sharply defined? Interestingly, um, several people we spoke with um, talks about the value of fuzzy categories for feminist service provision and politics. And how, in a sense, um, the conflict that's happened over the last few years has made that practically effective fuzziness much, much harder, and everyone is moving towards sharpening the categories. Um, categories are important, and our research isn't arguing for the state to be gender neutral or to ignore gender, far from it. Um, and that's really important. Our research highlights how people experience injustice, pleasure, and power through the social categories that structure their lives in which they take up. 
But our research has also shown the problems that formalizing and policing membership in categories can generate. It produces some people as excluded or precarious members, while others feel, others feel the category belongs to them. It empowers forces and systems such as state law who get to determine who belongs where. The energy put into policing membership can reify and stabilize categories like gender, which is particularly problematic when we're talking about categories of inequality. And finally, for categories like gender, there's no correct answer as to what they mean. Gender is understood in multiple and divergent ways. People's relationship to gender changes over time and gender categories themselves also change. So our research conclusion is certainly not to abandon categories such as gender as remedial structures, but to ask how can we find a way in the very divisive context that we're currently facing to explore both their uses and their risks. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Davina. And please, if you have clarification questions for Davina, just type them in the chat box and Rachel and Hayley will collect them after um, Flora. So Flora. Brilliant. Thank you very much, uh, Donatella. Um, so in this paper, which focuses on one specific strand of the project, um, I'll focus on the topic of single sex schools and kind of schools are interesting, um, at least in part because it's one of the few contexts where birth certificates are relevant. So it's one of the few institutions that will ask for a birth certificate in order to enroll a child. Now the strand of the project overall considers what the implications for single sex services are if legal gender status were to be reformed. Um, in particular, what the consequences would be for reform options that kind of allocate authority to organizations or individuals uh, to determine gender criteria and individual status in terms of eligi eligibility of who can access or receive services. Um, now, the materials drawn on this paper have emerged from documentary research, as well as semi-structured interviews um, with education policy experts and uh, members of school leadership teams from sec secondary schools across England. Uh, for the purpose of this paper, I'll use the example of single-sex schools to consider two key questions regarding sort of reform options in this area. Firstly, um, what aims is gender differentiation currently trying to achieve as it exists? And secondly, how service providers, including secondary education providers, currently engage with challenges to their differentiation criteria, which are, of course, occurring right now as well. And the focus of this research is really on the effects that a potential change to the existing legal framework uh, for assigning and recognizing legal gender would have on everyone in England and Wales, um, not just on trans and non-binary people, and of course, not just on trans and non-binary pupils. However, it should be noted that, of course, sort of in considering the way single-sex services and more specifically schools have currently handled trans inclusion questions uh, can provide some insights regarding the kind of potential flashpoints and tensions that may emerge in this area if wider changes were to be made in the future. Now this is probably something a lot of people are already familiar with but sort of historically kind of the proliferation of girls secondary schools in England and Wales um, dates roughly back sort of to the early and mid 19th century and the Education Act 1902. And generally contemporary single sex schools now justify the exclusion of either boys or girls, depending on the school, uh, by referring to what they perceive as the benefits of single sex or single gender education. And particularly in the context of girls schools, this is of course often framed around an explicit or implicit narrative about discrimination and oppression women and girls face in education and ultimately later on in life. As such girls schools often advocate a specific type of feminism focused around academic achievement. 
In this sense, girls' schools can be read as a social or educational uh, rather than a law-based attempt to compensate for or alleviate gender-based harm and oppression. Indeed, existing research on mixed schools suggests that even when students are rated the same in terms of their abilities, female students in mixed settings are given less attention and instruction than male students in classroom settings. One key argument then for kind of the explicitly female spaces within, within single-sex schools and education is that it allows girls some limited escape from an education system uh, still based around patriarchal values and male domination. And beyond the kind of empirical arguments about students' achievement in these environments, a wider argument for the existence of girls' schools seems to also focus on the kind of space they provide for prioritizing different types of experiences and ways of being that go beyond sort of purely academic achievement in league tables, for instance. And notably, in sort of many instances, this focuses more on an overarching ethos than the actual sort of gender of the people involved, certainly in my research. And this is not to say that kind of single-sex educational spaces inherently challenge gender norms or boundaries. And in many instances, particularly if they're very conservative settings, they may actually reinforce them through uniform policies, through behavior codes, and so on. And others have already argued that uh, single-sex schools can really normalize gender stereotypes and often have a slightly outdated understanding of sex and gender as natural and purely binary concepts in which, of course, girl pupils are meant to fit into. So in some sense, there's a risk here that femininity, particularly in single-sex spaces, becomes primarily defined as an other or an abnegation of masculinity or in comparison to other ways of being female that are centered less around academic or professional achievement, which are considered as sort of less than. At the same time, there's also the potential within these spaces um, for kind of both concepts to become changed and delinked from a notion of kind of biological essentialism or to potentially become irrelevant entirely if single-sex spaces are primarily understood as encouraging a specific way of being in the world rather than specific identity, individual identities or signifiers that might exist within these spaces. So for instance, one interview had kind of experience of working in both mixed sex and single sex schools explicitly highlighted the perceived advantage of a single sex school. Um, according to her, you do get a disproportionate number of girls compared to current schools who study physics and maths who want to go on and read engineering. And by the time they leave us and get into those environments, they're self-assured. Um, so the value of single-sex education was very clear to many providers. Um, and they were very happy and vocal about what they saw as kind of the benefits of this model of education. Now, at the same time, as sort of this kind of general understanding of single-sex education is out there, um, there has been a notable increase in news stories, um, media reports and legal cases about the way schools have made efforts to include or not to include trans and non-binary pupils. And to shed some light on the recent debates around challenges to gender-based rules, I think it's worth considering the kind of prevailing legal requirements and duties on the basis of which these decisions are being made. The existence of single-sex schools, while of course sort of de facto discrimination against one sex, is of course expressly permitted under the Equality Act, which makes an exemption for single-sex school. In contrast, mixed-sex schools that segregate pupils by sex entirely, rather than only for specific activities like PE or uh, relationship education, are in violation of the Equality Act's pro prohibition against sex discrimination. So you kind of either have to be wholly a single-sex school or not. And overall, the Equality Act does not prevent single-sex schools from making accommodation for the inclusion of trans and non-binary pupils, um, regardless of whether their sex at birth aligns with a school's single-sex status or not. And in fact, the Equality Act may be seen as encouraging this, um, in part through kind of the non-discrimination duty under Section 7 uh, regarding gender reassignment, but also through the public sector equality duty, which of course applies to um, schools within the public realm.
And although the legal position of trans and non-binary pupils in single-sex schools is not entirely clear-cut and has been subject to some contestation, including in the courts, um, given the increasing prevalence of students identifying as trans and non-binary at an early age, it should perhaps not be that surprising uh, that schools are increasingly making efforts to better include trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming pupils, or at least thinking about how this would be possible or not possible within their current sort of policy framework. In concrete terms, such attempts at inclusion um, are generally initiated by head teachers or by students themselves and often focus on practical changes in, in the main instance. Uh, so a number of schools have changed their uniform policies, which often serve to most visibly police students' gender expression in uh, the British school system to allow students to wear traditionally gendered items like skirts or trousers, regardless of their legal status. Similarly, many schools now allow students to go by their preferred name and pronouns, which may or may not match their legal documentation. And of course, it's not possible to change legal documentation until the age of 18 in any case. Beyond this, schools are also increasingly allowing students to access changing rooms and bathrooms in line with their gender, even when this does not correspond to their sex as registered on their birth certificates. When schools are confronted with the question of how to do this or how to implement such changes, um, what's most striking is the reference to kind of community values. And community is a term that sort of get, got referred to over and over in setting these policies. Um, and certainly it's not a straightforward concept for those involved in decision-making um, or something that they can always articulate precisely what they have in mind when centering this idea of community, but it nevertheless kept coming up. And it often focused on the idea of prioritizing the need to create a cohesive, but also diverse community or a community that could provide a positive environment for students to be in and to develop themselves as persons. And while there's really a potential for community as a concept to be exclusionary, as it can reify sort of homogeneity and sameness and prioritize kind of the dominant norms within an existing community, for some schools at least, communities seem to be linked more to an ethos of inclusivity rather than exclusivity. So it wasn't about keeping people out of the community, but rather bringing them into it and sort of encouraging buy-in into the community. And of course, in their decision-making, schools are bound by the legal requirements of the Equality Act, as well as the policies produced by the Department for Education and by regulatory bodies like Ofsted, uh, which schools and school leaders are acutely aware of. But beyond these official frameworks, there seems to be some resistance to creating internal policies that provide a clear definition of how the school defines its single-sex status. Um, so for instance, whether this includes only um, people who were assigned a specific sex at birth, or whether it also includes trans or non-binary students, or to providing general guidelines on inclusion or accommodation, or the decision not to offer these. Interviews then emphasize the desire for individual discretion and an avoidance of more formal kind of law-like policy structures. However, this in practice also meant that it was easy for unwritten kind of de facto policies to exist alongside both official legal requirements and internal school policies. This may of course be seen as beneficial in the sense that it allows kind of for creativity and discretion on behalf of the school leadership team, uh, which is something that's certainly desired by heads of schools. But it also raises concern about transparency, accountability and consistency in how decisions are being made around this. And a key point that seems to really emerge from this kind of issue of the various layers of policy, both written and unwritten that coexist at the same time within schools, um, relates to the question to what extent this can really be read as a form of legal pluralism, albeit sort of a soft kind. While the schools involved in this research project relied largely on the existing legal framework as they understand it, and they would frequently point to the Equality Act, um, and they would, of course, also require kind of legal documentations like birth certificates for admissions in the first place. 
it seemed that once the student becomes part of the school community, so once the student is admitted to the school, the school's own formal and informal policies um, are likely to carry greater regulatory value and relevance than external rules. So when asked about specific instances of how they had dealt with students um, wanting to join or wanting to transition, for instance, head teachers would be much faster to point to their own school approach rather than to the Equality Act, for instance. In this sense, then schools may almost function as a separate jurisdiction in Mariana Valverde's terms, in that there are sites for potential struggle and conflict over authority and governance. Um, and heads would frequently explain how such sort of struggles had played out um, in many different contexts. And this becomes particularly apparent in instances where there are conflicts over a school's decision to define its individual character or ethos through admissions criteria. And heads of schools would also point to other admissions criteria that have caused such issues. And although there have yet to be legal disputes about a school's admissions criteria regarding sex and gender, there have been legal cases about other protected identity characteristics such as religion, for instance, in the JFS case. It may be then that if legal gender in the context of decertification were to become more like religion, so a protected characteristic that is covered by equality law in order to avoid discrimination, but isn't legally certified through it by giving a formal legal status that goes on official documents, for instance, but there might be an emergence of more acute boundary disputes around sort of sex and gender too. As such decertification may lead to an increase of appeals to the courts to intervene in disputes about sex and gender-based admissions criteria used by organizations like single-sex schools or later on women's services. And although there have been sort of relatively few legal challenges based on the other self-identified categories under the Equality Act, this may in fact be due that unlike sort of sex and gender, ethnicity and sexuality are less commonly used to govern access to specific resources like schooling. Um, so while there are religious schools, there are very few schools that differentiate by criteria other than sex, for instance. But further, if we understand kind of spaces as shaping the people within them and institutions are specific spaces in which kind of this identity formation happens and in particular schools are, and head teachers were very aware of this and they described part of their mission as helping pupils develop their own identity. It seems that girls could produce girls' school students regardless of their actual gender. With an increasing number of girls' schools, including non-binary students, trans girls and trans boys, as well as admitting boys in sort of in general in the sixth form level at, in many instances to ensure they have sufficient numbers. It raises a question of whether girls are even necessary to being a girls' school. Certainly many schools were quite happy to say, well, we include boys at sixth form, but we're still a girls' school. Is this then really a question of quantity where a certain number of girls is required to maintain the character of the school? Or can a school be a girls' school without girls as this label is really a signifier of a particular educational or a type of feminist or even feminine ethos, um, as I mentioned at the beginning? More fundamentally, although a diverse approach to gender and girls' schools can be read as positive, um, often because it's meant to teach the students that there are different ways of being a girl or different ways of being a woman in the world um, that doesn't need to be reduced to stereotypes. We may also seek to challenge why this approach seems more prominent in girls' schools than in boys' schools, so why are we only seeing this trend in this setting? If this type of disruption of gender norms or boundaries only takes place within very narrow and specific spaces, then are the same norms and boundaries left unchallenged in other contexts? Um, do boys' schools not have to work out who should be part of their student body? It seems likely that a more fundamental change to existing legal gender status would also then need to engage more broadly with how institutions and public spaces continue to define and set gender boundaries in order for this to have a truly transformative 
effect um, rather than just leaving kind of existing gender norm stereotypes and gender-based oppression untouched. And I'm going to leave it at this. And thank you very much for listening. And if you have any questions for clarification, please send them to Rachel or Haley uh, using the chat function. Thank you very much, Flora. And yes, questions for uh, Liz and Emily, but also substantive questions because after the papers will open up to um, discussion. So please do continue typing them. Thank you very much, Donatella, for giving me that, that moment, which hopefully means that everybody can see what I can see on my screen. Wonderful. Thank you. And um, hello to the hundred and I think four or five people that we have on, on the call from myself. I'm going to briefly talk um, around the paper that myself and Han Newman write within the special issue, which is based on the survey data component of our project. So just to kind of contextualise that for you. What you have in front of you are the four key aims of the project as originally conceived. And you'll see highlighted two aspects that particularly fall within the strand that myself and Han have been working on, which is around thinking about wider publics and how they're constituted in relation to debates and discussions about the future of legal gender. And also really to try and understand different people's hopes and indeed worries in relation to both the current legal framework that we have within England and Wales specifically, um, and also the different kinds of approaches that may or may not be on the table either now or in the future around um, how we might constitute gender within legal and regulatory contexts. So that's our particular focus. Now, one of the main things that we did in relation to accessing people's views around this was we, we produced what we called an attitudes to gender survey. This survey ran in partial overlap with a consultation that happened from the government back in the latter part of 2018, which you know, in many ways seems like a different life <laughs> to, to many of us, particularly in the, in the context that we're in now. But ne nevertheless, um, our survey collected lots of demographic information. Um, it had a, a section which was around gender within the context of everyday life. And the final section of this survey was around legal gender specifically. Um, because our window for data collection was in partial overlap with the government's consultation, that, that resulted in a number of things about that data collection moment in time. One of which was we received an awful lot of responses, um, in part because it was such a timely and topical issue at that particular point in time. But what it did do was it, it shaped the nature of the different publics that we captured in the context of the survey data that we collected. And I'll, and I'll try and contextualize that a little bit briefly for you um, in this short presentation. But first, I just want to give you a sense of the, the overall survey sample that we, that we, um, that we reached. So as you can see, we had over 3,000 um, responses the majority of whom identified as female, but you can see that there's a number of different gender constituencies um, within the, the sample as well. And as we were primarily focusing on England and Wales in, in, in terms of jurisdiction, you'll, you'll see that 72% 
resided in in England, which was which was great for us because we reached the geographical con constituency that that we were looking for um, in part. And 88 from Wales is is also a you know a fairly healthy number for for a sample of this size. You'll see that um, in terms of age, we had a good spread across the age age spectrum. Um, with um, I think the median was around um, early 40s. Um, yeah, it was in, it, exactly 40, actually, with a range from 18 up to 82 years. And you can see here that um, the majority of our participants were um, the sex that they were they were given or assigned um, at birth um, and 15.2 percent didn't um, didn't identify um, in that way. So. Um, in terms of the actual methodological approach, what, what we had, and the, the surveys reproduced in full at the, at the end of the paper, um, so you can access that, is that there were a range of different questions, but we also had quite a number of attitudinal statements, and here's just, just one example. And what, what we found, because in part we'd given respondents the opportunity to comment on the attitudinal choices that they were providing, so say, you know, from strongly disagree through to strongly agree, um, what, what we found was that, um, that often um, opinions were conveyed, and I think this is, you know, as Davina alluded to, is reflective of the, of the level of personal investment in the debates that are happening, or certainly were happening at that point in time in late um, 2018. They were, they, were, they were often quite confrontational and, and challenging um, in the way that, that people expressed their, their views. So just to give you an example, one, one um, male heterosexual 67 year old said the people behind it have such strong biases that I doubt anything good or useful will come from it so that that's just kind of one one example so I think it's fair to say that um, and we talk about this in the paper you know people do have ideological investments um, and political stakes in both the production and the consumption of research and we could see how that played out in the context of, of, of the survey um, our view was that it, it's not Achieve, it's neither achievable or desirable to kind of strip those investments and stakes away from and out of research processes. And it's kind of disingenuous to claim that in this case, a survey could discover an objective truth. There are, there are a range of truths that can be uncovered through this kind of um, methodology. Now, um, it, you know, in addition, um, you know, the, so there's the space for comment and there was also, as you can see, nearly half, well, about half of the of the overall sample chose to write additional feedback in the context of, of the survey. And, and some, of, some of that was around positioning us as researchers in the landscape of the production of the research. So that that happened quite a lot in terms of the feedback that was that was provided, which um, really does seem to you know, it resonates with with what Davina said elsewhere about the, the the nature of this, you know, very binary, very binary drama. And I'll just give you some some examples. So, in terms of how we were positioned as a research team, we were positioned by respondents as both anti and pro trans in the way that that participants, um, uh, you know, talked about us in in the survey responses and I'll just give you some examples I, I won't read through them but I will I'll just put them up slowly so you've got an opportunity to 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 digest them 
So here we have um, uh, positioning us as, as advocates of, of, of trans ideology and that being a, a minority perspective societally. Um, another one here around uh, pu pushing uh, an, an agenda, a particular agenda around agenda around gender. Um, another one here, um, which is positioning us in a, in a gender critical or um, a, a TERF stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist viewpoint. Um, one here around um, a bias um, and, an, and an assumption about who was completing the survey um, and, and also a, you know, an assumption here that the researchers are looking for anti-trans results. And somebody um, marked the language within the survey and highlighted where that was, was cisgenderist. So, so you can see here that, you know, we're, the, the, the way in which this constituency engaged with, with the survey was, was very diverse and, and we were positioned in, in various different, different ways. Um, that's not to say that we didn't get feedback that, that, was, that, was, that was positive. Um, and some, some com people commented that, you know, it was really interesting, it was, it was challenging, it was well-structured, it was thought-provoking thought as a positive thing. Um, and it's given them a lot to think about. So um, I don't want to, you know, wholly represent this in a, in a particular direction. Now, what we do in the paper is we chose to apply cisgenderism as, a, as an interpretive lens to try and interrogate these data. Um, I mean, essentially, um, it's, it's the assumption that assigned sex determines gender and the assumption that there are only two genders. So, so that's essentially it. And you can see here in this, in this second quote, um, if we zoom in, there's this notion that, um, you know, in a, in a regulatory and legal context that, you know, having male and female as the only options on forms, the pathologization of sex gender diversity. Uh, so, for example, treating intersex variations as biological anomalies, which was something that came through um, from some survey respondents quite, quite firmly, is, is, is part of the, the sort of... Um, uh, the lens that we wanted to apply to these data. And we also wanted to, to apply um, an endosexism perspective, which is basically a non-intersex view of the world, which, you know, very many people hold um, by kind of default, given that intersex variations are, are less normative um, than more, more binary variations that people hold. So um, we felt that this was pertinent for two reasons. First, similarly to cisgenderism, endosexism foregrounds the majority and taken for granted um, a non-intersex perspective. Um, as potentially problematic, rather than focusing on the minority experience and, and individual prejudice. So it kind of elevates it. So I'm talking a little bit as a social psychologist here. It elevates it outside of the individual realm to more to a more kind of group level um, framework or, or discourse. So just to kind of whiz through um, a couple a couple of examples here. Um, one of the quotes. Um, which is a key one in the context of a, of a project focused uh, and interrogating, you know, legal context, 
highlights that you know that there wasn't an uh, there wasn't much of an appetite overall for 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 change to the current legal system and there was quite a lot of um disagreement with with the potential for reform now potentially in part because it was something that seemed as seemed like it could potentially happen at that point in time you know the 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 ideas that surface aren't devoid of their their kind of social context at, at that time and um what we found was that there was a very strong um critique of gender in survey responses and and a foregrounding of, of biological sex so um in terms of this kind of perspective um we can see, I'm not going to read, read this out necessarily, but you can see the kinds of comments that came through. So, um, you know, the idea that, you know, a person when born has certain facts, what their sex gender is, male or female, get it confirmed by DNA if, if, if you have to. So it's a quite an essentializing view of what, of what sex and gender is. That there was also um, quite a, a prevalent perspective around um, anti-self-identification. Um, and I won't, again, I'll leave you to, to read this. I'm not going to read it through. But you can see, I think, how cisgenderism is evident in the investment in the status quo of continuing to assign a gender at birth. Um, a system that, you know, may not have any later impact on a cisgender person, but is likely to for anyone who is who is not cisgender. And there's some interesting work here at play in this quote around what constitutes um, whether change is progressive or not and how and how that how that's viewed um and it doesn't take much to kind of extrapolate so so the the notion here is you know around um you know age and other categories that it, it kind of makes a nonsense of of thinking about about gender um in in different or novel ways um and you know something like something like age say um so the 30 year old claiming to be to be 15 um you know there are other ways that we can conceptualize age um metabolic age for example could be um a more significant form of thinking about age than chronological age but we don't necessarily primarily think about age as as as, as metabolic for example so um you know we can open up different kinds of spaces potentially for, for, for thinking about, about these categories in different ways. There was also pro-self-identification perspectives um, in these, these, these data as well. So, um, you know, calls for gender being viewed very much more on a spectrum and, and de depathologization um, being called for by various constituencies. I'm not going to read this out in the interest of time, um, but to say overall, the findings from the, the Attitudes to Gender survey did demonstrate some movement towards a model of gender that exists beyond a, a dimorphic binary one, that the one that the current UK legal system and much of society reinforces. However, the challenges to this system were often outweighed by cisgenderist and endosexist ideas, which are steeped, I think, in a commitment to the status quo, as it currently is, um, positioning a model of binary biological sex as, as an immutable reality and prioritising this model above other models um, of sex and or gender and gender identity. So, 
Um, if we're to take different ways of thinking about this seriously, um, on the face of it, the findings from our survey steer us towards the regulatory status quo. Um, however, we suggest in the paper that if one applies a cisgenderism framework um, alongside allied concepts such as heterosexism, such as endosexism and the like, that potentially moves claims and counterclaims of being prejudiced or bigoted to less individualised, more societal, more cultural level discussion and debate. And it perhaps, I'm not saying it will, but perhaps there's the potential for that, if not to diffuse, but to at least reposition some of the personalising that's manifest in, in public, some public perspectives um, and debates around this particular issue. So I shall stop there and I'll, I'll leave us much. with dialogue and compromise yes thank you very much Liz that's great and if you've got clarification questions again please uh, send them to um, Haley and Rachel uh, but we're going to hear now from Emily Thanks very much, Donatella. And I just wanted to um, once again extend our thanks to everybody who's attending this evening. Um, it's really great to see such a really big audience and it's brilliant to be able to reach, reach out and communicate about the research to a wide range of people. So um, I'm going to try and keep these comments fairly short because you've been listening to us for a while now. But I wanted to explain a little bit about the research that went into my paper in the special issue. And my paper really is about how we write statutes and whether as um, people engaged. Yeah. No, this one quite quiet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can hear somebody there in the background. I think somebody might need to mute themselves. OK, so I'm, my paper is basically about how we write statutes and probably everybody's aware that stat, statutes are the, the, the written text of law that is passed in Parliament and it comes out as two different forms of law. It comes out as acts of, acts of Parliament, acts and um, as regulations. And many people will be aware of, of the importance of statutes over the last few years because there's been extended debate in Parliament, for example, around Brexit legislation. And so really the aim of my paper is to take this wider public interest in, in statutes into the question of how we might reform legal gender. So one of the debates that's been going on um, amongst people who draft statutes and amongst people who are interested in, in Parliament is that a wider range of people now access statutes direct on our own, um, on our own smartphones, um, iPads, tablets or laptops. So the idea that what you used to have to kind of go to a lawyer and get legal advice about what the law says is really passing. And what's happening is that people are accessing these statutes and reading them. And what this has led to for legislative drafters is a bit of a dilemma about what, how, how, how you should write statutes, how you should make them intelligible to a wide range of people. And also there's been a wide range of debates about literally what platform the statutes should be hosted on and how to look at the structure and the appearance of statutes to make them much more easy to read and understand. So that's the kind of background to what the what I was looking at. Now, one of the goals of the um, project is to produce an experimental statute. So with all these questions of wider participation, reading statutes, I wanted to think about what is it exactly that statutes do? 
So there seem to be two strands about drafting an experimental statute. One strand is the strand that we're all tackling in different ways on the project. It's the substance of the legal change. It's the questions that Davina and Flora already outlined um, at the beginning of the session that arise in the papers that Davina, Flora and Robin have written about what would happen in each of these different areas of social life if we were to decertify sex and gender in the law of England and Wales. And I'm going to be contributing to that later on the project by focusing in particular on the area of equal pay. So these are the substantive areas of, of legal change that we might look at. But then that what my paper takes up is the question of, well, how do we draft a statute differently? What does it mean as a feminist law reform project to go about writing a statute? And what, what about the text of law makes it powerful? And so, um, I wanted to do two things in this uh, in this paper. I wanted I wanted to first of all explore the extent to which the form of law, just as much as its substance, actually matters. So. Um, the normal assumption is that with law, what it's what it's what's on the inside that counts. It's what law mobilizes in the wider world that's the most important thing. And I certainly agree with that. Um, many of us um, in this session and many of us involved on the project have spent our working lives tracing the social effects of particular laws. And what matters there is the political and legal intent behind the way that the law is written. And it, what matters is what um, the policymakers thought was going to happen in the wider world. But during the research for the article, I found that the way that the UK statutes have treated sex and gender over the last few years has not just followed, but helped to embed certain ideas about what sex and gender are. So um, the actual text of, of the way that gender is written, the, the, the ideas that are used, um, the, the use of um, uh, phrases such as he or she, um, themselves signal um, big debates in legislative drafting communities and in legislators, not just about the text of law, but the way that we should think about law's wider effects. So, for example, using the construction he or she looks to many people like it's inclusive, but it's limited to binary gender. And indeed, the construction he or she itself is a fairly recent phenomenon. And, and so it used to be the fact that it was it was assumed that you could just use the word he and, and, and intend that to mean um, women as well. So one of the things my article does is I point out that much as the written text of statutes looks official and settled, legislative drafters are constantly engaged in deliberation about how to draft when it comes to sex and gender. That debate is not over, it's constantly ongoing. Um, and so what I do in the paper is I, I chart some of the some of the big debates over um, the drafting of sex and gender that have happened through from um, work that was done by the legal historian Sandra Peterson on medieval um, and, uh, and um, uh, medieval constructions of, of sex and gender in um, in vagrancy statutes all the way through to um, debates with second wave feminism about how to how to draft gender into legislation through to more contemporary debates that have been taken up by legislative drafters about how to think about what drafting would look like um, with non-binary gender. 
So just as much as there's a controversy about the substance of law, there's also a constant, co constantly ongoing controversy about the text of law. And understanding this is really important for us uh, when we think about writing and the experimental statute that we're going to write ourselves. So that's the first thing that the article does. But the second thing is I then explore how we might actually go about drafting from a feminist perspective. And obviously, um, it, depending on one's own uh, feminist politics, um, it, it, it has a huge influence on, on what you think drafting from a feminist perspective actually might mean. But I went about um, trying to draw upon the lessons that feminists have been learning when drafting their own experimental statutes in other contexts. So one um, really in that's hosting this special issue, Feminists at Law, and it was published in 2008. Um, and it was a, an experimental statute um, to legalise or to, to help with the regulation of abortion in Ireland. And this was published before the referendum on abortion even happened in Ireland and before the subsequent law reform. So what I did was I interviewed many people who've, who've gone about feminist drafting and I tried to summarise some of the areas of focus and techniques that we could target as we move forward to drafting our own statutes. Um, and these include things like um, some of the things that were also areas of controversy amongst legislative drafters themselves. So using the singular they to avoid binary constructions of gender. So this is the idea that in wider society, um, there's increasing uptake of using the singular they because people might not identify with, with either of the, the traditional binary genders or people might want to associate with even the act of identifying in that way. Um, now with that wider social uptake of the singular they has been a debate amongst government employed legislative drafters about whether that's an appropriate way of drafting in an inclusive way. Um, and that's very live. And it, some feminists have used that as a, as a technique within their own experimental statutes. But there's also alternative expressions of gender, such as Z, ZE, or here HIR, that can also be used. And those are understood widely, with both within wider uh, groups of feminists, but also within legislative drafting communities themselves. But another more radical technique might be to look at the, um, the genre of drafting that has, has, has been taken as to be normal over the last few centuries, which is the idea that you draft in the third person. So you, you, you talk about people as he or she, and, and, and he might have certain legal obligations and she might have certain rights and benefits. And you actually flip it and you consider using the second person. So that is directly addressing the reader you shall not do this, you shall do this. This sounds really, really radical, but in fact, in, in Scotland, um, the Scottish Office of Parliamentary Council did consider using this in relation in one of its policy documents. And it's even though it's radical, it's not outside the bounds of what could be imagined for a statute. But the kind of things we're thinking about also are about how radical to be as feminists when, when writing an experimental statute. So it's about the positioning of the project, but it's also about the way that other feminists have positioned their own work. So there's been uh, huge uh, deliberations about whether to go for a form of law that is more likely to persuade policymakers and be able to be used within a wide range of policy and legal sectors, so something that looks much more like a law commission report, um, or whether to really just own the fact that in some circumstances, feminists are going to be trying to break apart the canon, they're going to be challenging authority, and they're going to be challenging power structures. And for that reason, there might be a bit more latitude in terms of the form that's used. 
there might be an assumption that you might not need to write something that looks like a, a draft bill, for example, or something that looks like regulations. But you might you might want to you might want to be more um, uh, utopian in, in the form of law that you use. Now, I'm going to leave that all up in the air because the work of actually mapping the controversy over sex and gender and mapping the ways in which feminists have thought differently about experimental statute writing was enough for one article. And it took a while and it involved a wide range of people, all of whom I really thank um, and, and, and really contributed to the project. But ultimately, what I've discovered in relation to writing this article is, is, that, is that the question of the form of law, how law is constructed, what form it takes and how law is communicated is not only much more interesting than I thought, but absolutely paramount when we think about reforming sex gender in the law of England and Wales. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Emily. And I think um, we can move to the Q&A session, but Davina, perhaps you can give just a couple of minutes of very brief um, reflections before we move. Davina, you're on mute. Yeah, it follows from what Emily was saying. So really just to go back to the start and just to remind people that the future of legal gender isn't an advocacy project. Its exploration of decertification as a law reform proposal is an open one. We want to explore whether it would be a good idea to consider what else might need to be in place and to prompt wider thinking about law's relationship to gender. Our research suggests that decertification could be a beneficial move in undoing the rigidities of the current structure and for signaling that gender shouldn't be something the state seeks to sustain. But it may also be an instance of slow law, a proposal worth progressing, but one whose formal introduction also needs other changes to be in place if it's to support gender equality and gender's undoing. So as Emily said, one planned out output from the project is the design of a law that can demonstrate what decertification um, as a progressive and feminist reform and so we want it to work as a progressive and feminist reform what it could entail and we're moving to that stage of the research process and want to involve um, as many people as we can in different ways in that. Um, one way we're thinking of our legal text is as a prototype so that can mean producing a model of what decertification looks like as a legal reform but prototyping isn't just about creating corrected, better versions of a thing where you adjust the as flaw, flaws and problems get identified until a viable output emerges, such as a good new law. So that's one version of prototyping. You keep, you keep creating improved versions. But the other way prototyping can work is about creating things that stimulate new questions, ideas and perspectives. And the ethnographer George Marcus describes this duality in relation to two kinds of prototype. One that's constrained by an orientation to producing a future usable product, and the other that's more exploratory, where the social experiment is an end in itself. As Emily's mentioned, um, we could make a choice between these two approaches, or the challenge I think for us now is how to combine them rather than choosing, but recognizing that combining them creates tensions. At the same time, tensions can be productive in pushing ideas forward. But what it also means is using a format to convey our law and our thinking about law that's less conventional. Um, it could, a model law in the conventional sense, as Emily says, 
may be less useful than the kind of composite text, which demonstrates how decertification could be engineered, what it would legally involve at a technical level, but also identifies the other laws that need to proceed or accompany it. And that's important because we've heard from a lot of people that we've interviewed about the other things that need to be in place for decertification to be a progressive development. And also to create a text that can prompt and stimulate questions about gender, about what it means and could come to mean, and about the place and limits, perhaps, of state law in gender's transformation. So I think hopefully that's given people a sense of the different strands and threads of the project. And we've now very happy to answer questions or hear from people if they've got points they want to make. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Legal Gender podcast. To find out more, head to futureoflegalgender.kcl.ac.uk and to receive updates, follow us on Twitter at Future Gender. Mm-hmm.